So uh, today's service is a little bit different, at least the sermon's different. Uh, periodically, I try to gather questions. I do gather questions from the congregation. And so then you sort of drive the sermon, right? So I gathered questions. I can't answer all of them. I'll just address a few of them. Um, some of them were asked multiple times, and I made sure to include those. Um, but I just want to say a few things first. Um, it, this is a place where we honor questions. I would suggest that we honor questions more than answers. The sign out front says what I believe, which is uh, faith is threatened not by secularism, but by certainty, that I think God honors our questions. M more than that, this is a place that honors your doubts. You don't know what you believe. You're not sure. You got lots of questions. Well, good. This is a good place for you because you want to know who else has those? Me. I could have asked 15 more questions that I've got. We honor question here. I think questioning is a sacred act. If you want to get to know someone, the first thing you ought to do is ask them questions. You, you ever been on a bad first date? I'll tell you the common thread. The person wasn't curious. They didn't ask you any questions. You want to go on a good first date? It's because they cared and they asked questions. You want to get to know someone? You ask questions. You want to have a relationship with God? You better have a lot of questions. God, having a relationship with God is not having a bunch of answers. It's having a bunch of questions. That's how you dig deeper. That's how you engage. That's how you get to know. So I want this to be a place where you get to ask questions, and you're not ashamed of that, and you get to have doubts, and you don't have to be ashamed of that. We're talking about an infinite, transcendent, unknowable God. How could you not have questions? How could you not have doubts? If you didn't, you're fooling yourself. Anyone who speaks about God with certainty, it's, a, it's an act of delusion because how God is unknowable to the human mind. Okay, so questions are awesome. Thank you for asking questions. Thank you for being honest with your questions. That drives us forward. Que answers are stagnant. Answers, there's a period at the end which says that's it. Questions move us forward like we still have more room to go, more ways to grow. Right? We've got a journey in front of us. Okay, so the first question uh, deals with this verse. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I have no intention of answering any of these questions definitively. If you were hoping for that, like, Joe will answer it once and for all. You will be sorely disappointed. What I hope to do is to say, here are some of my thoughts. Here's how I might frame this. Consider this. Maybe this will be helpful to you, but in the end, you are going to have to leave and continue to do the thinking and the growing and the questioning, right? So I do not intend to answer it once and for all to give the answer. I just would frame it, right? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So the context here is Matthew 5. It's the most famous sermon Jesus gives. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And I want, I think the context can help us a little bit. At least it helps me um, because I think... I would argue that part of the audience Jesus has in mind for this sermon are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Those who felt like they followed the law, they knew the law, they had all the answers, and they were arrogant, and they judged folks who didn't celebrate the Sabbath right, who didn't follow the letter of the law right, right? They were very judgmental, and Jesus has harsh words for them in other places in Scripture, but I do think part of the Sermon on the Mount is having them in mind. So I want you to hear 
just a few of the verses leading up to that, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus says, You've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. So you've heard it said don't kill, but I'm saying don't even be angry. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. That's brutal. So it's like not only is it the act, it's like into your heart. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other also. In each of these situations, it's like I picture Jesus like looking right in the eyes of some Pharisee. Like, oh, that's right, you don't kill. But you're angry, aren't you? And you're bitter. And that means you're no better. Oh, that, you, don't, you don't commit adultery, that's great, but I know you lust, don't you? So you're no better. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I know that you love your Jewish neighbor, and I'm telling you, you love your enemy, right? Because I know you don't do that. You love the people that are like you, have the same theological views or political views, but can you love your enemy? Can you turn the other cheek? And at the conclusion of this, it is be perfect. So Jesus sets this in high bar. It's almost like you, you thought the law was tough? You thought the Old Testament law was hard to follow? It's even higher than that, right? It's about not just your actions. It's about your mind and your heart and your motives. Like, what are you filling your life with? So this can uh, go a couple of ways, right? Uh, one way is, oh, I can do all of that stuff, and that leads to pride. Or, this is probably more likely if you're like me, I can't possibly do that, and so it leads to despair. And those are the two most common responses. I'm either better than people and I can be filled with pride, or I'm, I couldn't possibly live into that and I'm filled with despair. But you have to remember, I think that we lose the point from my perspective. I think Jesus is saying something like, I'm setting the bar way up here. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there's no way any of you are going to meet it. So Pharisees... Be quiet. You're no different. You're no better. Everyone is going to need grace. Everyone needs grace. That's right. You can't do it. You couldn't possibly check every box and dot every I and cross every T. And you're going to need God to forgive and love and have grace on you. Oh, so it's like this. Oh, good. So then it's grace. Yep. John Wesley talks about this verse quite a lot. It's one of the Methodist distinctions. So John Wesley is like our theological patriarch. He talks about a concept called entire sanctification. Sometimes he calls it Christian perfection. I don't like either of those terms. Don't tell my boss. Um, I'm supposed to really like them. But Wesley takes this verse, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and talks about Christian perfection uh, in a way that says human beings through God's work in our lives, can attain some kind of holiness in this life. You are not doomed to be stuck where you were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. God can work and transform and change you so that there can be growth. Am I ever going to hit this verse, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Nope. And if I ever think I do, I'm filled with pride and I already missed the mark. That it's going to be constantly saying, 
I need help, Lord. I need your grace, Lord, and I want to grow. So there's like this, it's like it gives you something to aim at even if I'm not going to hit it or attain it. And I think that kind of humility is so good for me that kind of like, okay, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to keep fighting, but in no sense will I have achieved it so that I can judge people around me. Amen? Amen. Something to consider, right? Wesley sets the bar, right, where Jesus does and says we will fail. Ask for God's grace. Ask for God's love. Ask for God's guidance. You can't do it on your own and you're not going to accomplish it, so there's no business in judging others. And again, I've mentioned this in past sermons where when we talk about sin and we're always obsessed with other people's sin and my line is always like, oh, God cares a lot about it. And you know whose God cares about? Yours. Yours, not other people's. We're not here to be a, a, a tally marking machine for other people's mistakes. We're here to feel convicted and be challenged to grow and to love. Um, I got another question, uh, several questions about uh, women uh, and scripture, and I get the distinct sense from the questions, the repeated questions, that many of you have been browbeaten. Many of you women have been browbeaten in other places by these verses about submission, about women not leading. So there was almost like a, um, like you don't believe that, right, Joe? Like you don't believe that. Nope, I don't. <laughs> Uh, and neither do Methodists, and neither does this congregation. So uh, I'm going to give you the short version first, and then we'll look at some passages of Scripture. Um, so here we believe that uh, the distinctions we often make between men and women about what roles we're supposed to play are cultural, societal. They're not eternal. So you don't have to play some domesticated role as a woman. You don't get to play the leadership role if you're a man uh, that, like... Um, in some ways, God gives us all gifts and graces, and you should live into those, whether you're a woman or a man. And uh, anyone who knows Jenny Hurst will tell you that she is called, that she is equipped, that her ministry changes lives and hearts. How could that be ignored or denied? That, amen. amen. What, 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 would you, what else would you need besides that? Besides seeing women called by God, answering the call, equipped by God, gifted by God, and then the fruits of those ministries being nothing other than love for the world. That's all I need. That, I'm good, right? But I understand that for some people it's more complicated. That, that, I'm, this is Joe Bankard. I don't speak for God. I understand that other people say, but wait a second, Joe. Scripture clearly says X, Y, and Z, and I understand that. Um, I'm going to read scripture a little differently. I'm going to understand it a little differently. I hope you're okay with that, right? Like, I don't think we all have to read the Bible exactly the same to be part of the same congregation. I think we can disagree. Uh, one passage that often gets used comes from Genesis. Um, to the woman, God said, this is after the fall. They've eaten the fruit, right? God said to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So uh, I just like, <laughs> I'm clearly I'm preaching to the right place if you guys laugh at that. I, I feel, I, I, I'm really nervous, so that makes me feel a little bit better, I guess. Um, I just watched Jeff, I think, put Jeanette in a headlock. No, that's not what, I'm, that's not what it means, Jeff. Um, so I want you to understand the context here for just a minute, though. 
It's not like God is saying this as some wonderful culmination of God's plan. Like, oh, guess what? And then men will rule over you. This is like, because we live in a fallen state, because things are not the way God wants them, childbearing is going to be painful and men are going to rule over you. I don't see that as God saying that's a good thing. It's like, that's, this is what's going to happen now that men are fallen and sinful, right? So I see this. It's, do you remember? I've preached this uh, in Samuel 9. God is like, oh, you say you want a king, Israel? You don't want a king. Trust me, you don't want a king. If you get a king, they're going to take your sons and daughters and they're, they're going to die in war. They're going to take your lands and fields. God's not saying that as like, and it's going to be great. God's like, this is because kings are humans and they're going to make lots of mistakes and you, you, I should be your king, not any earthly king, right? I feel the same way here. God's like, now that we live in a world that's broken, men are going to rule over you. Let me tell you what the Bible says about what the kingdom's going to look like though. Right? So this comes from uh, Galatians. So in Christ, in the kingdom of God, when we are all in Christ, right? You are going to be children of God through faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you, have all, you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The distinctions we make about who's free, who's a slave, ethnic differences, gender differences, economic differences, all the divisions we create in Christ, those evaporate. We are all simply children of God. This to me is the ideal, not from the fall, but from how this is going to be restored. This, in my mind, restores women, right? Women can be called. Women can be equipped. Women can be successful in leadership, in ministry, I'm gonna, this might be helpful. This, this helps me. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe it won't. Uh, part of how uh, Wesleyans, part of how Methodists are trained to read Scripture is using something that John Wesley called the quadrilateral. If you want to skip two slides, um, go to, yeah. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. <clears throat> so this is very beneficial as I think about reading Scripture and understanding it. John Wesley says, we have four authorities, primary authorities, as Christians. Things that we have to consider, things that we have to uh, engage in dialogue with one another, things we may have to submit to. So, of course, Scripture, he puts foundationally at the bottom, uh, but you also have tradition, experience, and reason. And all of these matter. You can't read the Bible without your brain because it won't make any sense. So you got to try to make sense of things, so you got to use your reason, right? You have to use some of the tradition, meaning we have 2,000 years of Christian history there's probably some wisdom there that we should mine and we should pay attention to and respect. And we should also care about our experience. So John Wesley cared a lot about science, a lot about the scientific method, uh, at least for his day. He wrote a whole book on medicine. It's terrible. But he was trying. <laughs> he was trying to engage the human body, the world around us via experience. So uh, I'm going to give an example with the issue of women. There are scriptures that will say, like in 1 Corinthians 14 or in Timothy, that women should submit to their husbands, that they should avoid leadership. And so we bring out the quadrilateral. We say, okay, I see we've got some scripture and certainly tradition, right? Lots of Christian traditions said that women couldn't be priests. Women couldn't hold certain positions, right? But 
when it comes to reason and experience, we've already experienced that the Holy Spirit seems to be doing something new in our world. It seems that many women feel passionate about leading, are equipped and really good at it, right? Are successful. The fruits, not only of ministry, but of leadership in all kinds of contexts, seems evident. And we say the Holy Spirit is not trapped into the pages of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is alive and active even now, doing new things even now. So when we experience the Spirit, when our community testifies to it, when it's not just one person saying it, but when many of us say, no, I feel the Spirit doing something new, we're going to let our experience and we're going to let our reason reshape how we view that Scripture. So we, I say, well, when Paul was writing, absolutely. Women were largely illiterate. They weren't allowed to be educated. What, speaking out in a service might be more of a distraction than anything else. I understand saying, maybe be silent. I mean, I still find that to be totally harsh. But if I was a man living in the first century, maybe I would have some harsh views. But it seems to me that the Spirit has done new and amazing things, and we shouldn't be locking the Spirit into Scripture. We should be unleashing it in the world, following the Spirit where it leads. So Methodists say, in this case, we're going to let our reason and our experience shape how we understand that Scripture. So we place it in a historical context, not as an eternal truth. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. I, I ask as though you could, like, no. Uh, if it doesn't, I'd love to grab coffee. I'm happy to meet later. I, I would be more than welcome to, like, we could talk about these things because I've got to go through somewhat quickly. For now, here's what I would say. Consider it. You might be sitting there like, I don't know about this, Joe. This seems, I, ugh. That's great. Wonderful. Wrestle. Let's disagree. Let's talk. That's okay. This is how we grow in relationship. This is how we, right, is by, like, our faith is not stagnant. Our faith is filled with continued struggle, right? And I'm more than happy for you to sit and say, I don't know. That's okay. Let's get coffee. There was this follow-up to this, which is, why does Collister use female language in its songs or in its prayers? So I want to I honor this. I know some of you have heard me say this before, but uh, here's the fundamental question for me. Are women created in the image of God? The answer to me seems 100% yes. Women are created in the image of God. No less than men. God is in the room, which means God does not have a body. I don't know how to think of God literally as a male. All the language we use for God is an analogy. It's imperfect. It's trying to help us connect. So the Bible uses things like father. The Bible uses things like king. And that helps us. It gives us some sense of like a loving parent or like a ruler who's just, right? But we wouldn't say that any word we use for God can fully exhaust who God is. God transcends gender. God doesn't have a body. So the language we have is inadequate, and I believe that women are fully created in the image of God as much as I am. And so to only use male imagery seems to only look at God from one angle. And I don't know about you, but I hate when people only see me from one angle, that I'm just this, and they don't know me as a dad, or they don't know me as a pastor, or they don't know me as a professor, they don't know me as a friend or a brother, they only know me as X, and then that's how I get defined. I don't like that. I'm guessing you don't like that when you get defined by just one facet. Okay, well then let's not do that to God. So we're gonna try to get as much imagery for God as we can. And by the way, the Bible uses things like king, the Bible uses things like father, and you know what else the Bible uses? Things like mother and woman, like these passages. 
Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, right? Just like a mother. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Don't mess with God. Don't mess with a mom who just got her, you know, a, a bear separated from her cubs, the most dangerous place to be, right? I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast will rip them open. And if you've messed with Kel's kids, you've, set, you've felt mama bear. So God is like this, right? How about Jesus? O oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jesus as a mother hen. But we ignore this. Mm -hmm. The Christian tradition has ignored this, mm -hmm. and we've ignored it in part because of late, I would argue, Joe Banker would argue, because of latent misogyny. We've internalized the sense that anyone powerful or holy or just needs to be a man. Couldn't be a woman. And in fact, if we say her, we feel uncomfortable. All I would suggest is just why does that make you uncomfortable, right? Just like be reflective, like be curious. Don't be, I'm not here to judge you. Like, hmm, I feel uncomfortable. Why? And I'm guessing it's because of history and tradition that hasn't really been so great to women. So that's why we use as many images for God here as we can. That's the motive. You might, maybe it still makes you uncomfortable, but that's why we do it. The last question I'll address, and then we'll, we'll do communion. And for those questions I didn't get to, I really apologize. Um, I will try to get to them in later times. I, I, and, I, and really, I, I hope, I, I think, I feel like maybe I'm coming across more confident in my answers than I should. I really don't want to talk like I'm certain or that I have the answer. This is just my perspective on these things, right? The last one is going to be about, is Jesus' death necessary for salvation? And this one was like, like, um, you know, I speak on this a little bit. I avoid it some. I'm going to be honest with you because I think the way I'm going to answer this is going to be different than the way maybe many of you answer it. Um, I'm here to tell you that Christians historically have disagreed even about super core issues like this. It's not like Christians only disagree about peripheral issues. Okay, so let me give you the view that I think is probably the most common, the one that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, it's a view uh, referred to as substitutionary atonement. That's like the nerdy theological term, but I can tell you sort of the basics of it, right? The idea is something like this. Um, God creates humanity and it's good. It's the Garden of Eden. And God can be in right relationship with humanity because sin has not entered the world. God is holy. So God cannot abide in sin. God can abide here, though, because no sin. As soon as you have the eating of the fruit, as soon as you have the, the human fall, the cosmic fall that results from that sin, suddenly relationship is broken with God. So now you have a sinful humanity, and that original sin gets passed to generation to generation, and you have a holy God who can't relate to sin, who can't be in relationship with sin. So you have this separation between God and humanity, God and creation, right? God is just, which means that sin has to be punished. But God is also love, which means God doesn't want to punish us. God doesn't want to give us what we deserve for our sin. 
but yet sin has to be accounted for because God is just. So you've got these two natures of God, God being just, God being love, sin needs to be punished, I don't want to punish humanity. God's solution is Jesus will take the punishment. Jesus will act as a substitute for our sin. So on the cross, Jesus gets all of the sin, all of the punishment, all of the abuse, and because of that sacrifice now, I can be forgiven, you can be forgiven, and we can enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus as a substitute for our sin. Is that pretty fair to what you heard? Okay. Um, feel free to believe that and come here. You're going to be in the majority, but I will tell you this is not my view, and I'll tell you why. Um, I fear that substitutionary atonement creates a system, uh, a system that traps God, a system that sanctions abuse, a system that creates of Jesus a victim. Uh, it feels completely incompatible with love, and I'll, I'll try to explain. It seems to me that this idea that God requires blood for forgiveness, uh, you, you run into one of two problems. If God actually needs to have blood, like from animals or from Jesus, like God needs blood for forgiveness, either that makes God limited in power, because the only way God can forgive is through blood. That's the only way, right? That traps God into a system that I don't even fall under. I get to forgive people all the time without blood. You can forgive people, right? I can provide grace. I don't need some... I don't need an animal to be sacrificed or for blood to do that. Am I more free than God? Am I, do I have more options available to me than God? Am I more powerful than God? God can only forgive with blood. That's it. If that's true, then God is pretty limited in power. I mean, couldn't God have made the rules any way God wanted? Like, hey, it doesn't require blood. Instead, how about you just really say you're sorry and change your behavior and then we're good? How about that? Couldn't God have done it a different way? If not, if God could not have done it a different way, then God by nature just seems trapped, just totally limited. Like, I'd love to forgive you, humanity, but first I need blood of the animal or of my son. The other problem is, oh, no, 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 joke. Come on. Of course God could have done it any other way. God could have chosen to forgive, to provide salvation in any way possible. Absolutely. So then God, of all the options, thought that killing an innocent person on the cross was the best way to offer forgiveness? That was the choice from a really all-loving, good God? Because that feels unnecessarily cruel to me. That I, I could have forgiven in some other way, but I chose this way, that death and blood were going to be the way of forgiveness. I, it feels like We've created a theological system that either makes God limited in power, like really small, like trapped, or it makes God look really cruel. I accept neither of those conclusions. So I wonder if there's a different way to think about Jesus on the cross. I wonder if we think about this differently than like a necessary sacrifice for our salvation. And some of this is weird because it's about the Trinity, so instead of thinking about like God <clears throat> standing and saying, Jesus, you're going to go become a human and then you're going to die 
so that humanity can be forgiven. That's your role. You're going to be born so that you can die. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll do it, right? Um, that to me feels very uncomfortable to think of it this way. As though God wills the cross. Like God's plan was Jesus is going to die. Because to me, Jesus on the cross is sinful. Humanity is putting Jesus on the cross. That's not, how can that be holy and loving and just? Jesus is innocent. He's being executed for nothing. To me, that's sin. How could a holy and loving God will plan for sin? Ooh, like that, I get very nervous. But what if we change the perspective? What if we think about through the eyes of Christ, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And God sees humanity lost, in the dark, desperate, broken. And God says, I'm going to become human to love them up close so they can see what love looks like. They can see who I am. So God becomes a human being with the intent, with the goal that humans would actually listen, with the intent that humans would say, oh my gosh, look, the Messiah. And when that doesn't happen, when the crowd turns, when the religious leaders refuse to submit, God's got a choice. God in the person of Jesus has a choice. I can either destroy these people or I can show them what sacrificial love really looks like. So Jesus chooses the cross, showing us the means of our salvation. The road of our salvation is through sacrificial love. It is through turning the other cheek and loving one's enemy. That's what salvation looks like. So we then pick up our cross daily to follow Christ towards our salvation. So it's not a theological system that traps God into one way of forgiving, but instead it becomes God wanting to become incarnate, which is crazy to me, and choosing love over violence. That's what it looks like. That's what it means to be saved. But that's different, right? Because what I'm suggesting is God did not will the cross. God didn't want the cross. But given humanity's response to Christ, that's what love looks like, the cross. What other option does Jesus have? Violence, destruction, injustice. And this is our choice every day. Sacrificial love or myself. Or those tiny acts of violence and injustice and selfishness, right? So, uh, I think, I, I imagine we could rerun the clock and history could look different. And humanity could have followed Christ and God could have provided forgiveness. So the cross becomes not the necessary will of God. The cross becomes the unfortunate consequence of humanity's sin and their response to Jesus. Because we don't deal really well when real love, we're confronted with love, right? We didn't, we didn't treat Gandhi so well or like MLK. Like the world just doesn't do this very well. But that's more about Sin than God's will. Okay. Woo! What I just said, uh, just consider. Just consider it. We'll talk, we can talk more. We can have coffee. Because I understand that uh, this is different than uh, many of your theological views. And I understand that. Like, I, I get that. Um, but, uh, but I don't have all the answers. I've got a lot of questions. But maybe that will, you'll find that helpful. Uh, we will pray and then we'll move to the table. Lord, I'm grateful that you're a God who's big enough for my questions, who's big enough for me to just get things wrong, that you're big enough for my doubts, that you're not threatened by us when we're unsure, 
that you welcome us, that when Thomas doesn't know what to do, when Thomas has doubts and Thomas has questions and he can't possibly imagine how someone dead could rise again, you didn't push Thomas away. You didn't cast Thomas out. You grabbed him. You said, get closer. Come closer to me, Thomas. Put your hand in the wound. You loved Thomas. You loved Thomas's questions. You honored them and you honor ours. And we're so grateful that you're not threatened, but that you honor them and that you can see us as we are, that, our, that what we want is more of you, that our heart is for more of you and that you love us in the midst of our uncertainties. And so I'm grateful for all the Thomases in the crowd today. I'm grateful for all those who are unsure and I pray, Lord, that you would say the same thing to us that you said to Thomas, which is to come closer, to ask more, to seek more, to experience your love. Amen.